So I, I think one of uh, the, the deepest questions haunting the human imagination is, do they see me? Like, do they actually know that I'm here? Now, just to be fair, I am not a sociologist. I am not a philosopher. I'm not a psychologist. I don't have any ologist action on my name. There's nothing going on there. And I guess you could make the case that I'm kind of a pastor. Sometimes that, that doesn't even feel true, but um, here I am. And this is, this is my point. There is wisdom and time that bear witness to this pressing question, do they see me? It seems to be a question that just like autobiographically has bubbled up and then through relationship over time has just come out in constant frequency with others. In other words, this question, do they see me, is asking internally, do I belong? Like, am I actually welcome here? Wherever here may be. And to my mind, this is like the perennial question woven into the human condition. It is a, 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 like we could be in a place surrounded by people. You could be at the farmer's market on a Saturday, and yet you still feel isolated. You could even be there with people who you love, and you know they love you, yet you feel trapped in your own skin. You see, this is this question that just continues to confront us. Do they see me? And in middle school, you know that season of life when you really knew yourself well? Yeah. In middle school, I got a taste of punk music, and I was trying to, like, figure out how this happened, because I grew up in a military home. There was not, like, there was classic rock. Um, how, how do you encounter punk music? Well, this is the time um, when Napster and Tony Hawk Pro Skater came into the world. If you don't know what either of those things are, Google them later. Uh, Napster is like a streaming service where you would like basically steal everyone's music. Anyways, it's not, I wouldn't like encourage it. Um, nevertheless, these two things converged and I like heard the Dead Kennedys for the first time. Now, I didn't know what the Dead Kennedys were talking about in terms of like anti-establishment and like down with the man and a lot of expletives. But what I did know is that my parents hated it. And I thought, punk music is for me. This is, this is definitely, these are my people. And so what do you do when you say these are my people? You like start to fashion yourself in the garb of punk rock, which meant like any shirt, like now the sleeves are off. They're, oh, belts? Well, if there's not studs on the belts, then it's not really a belt. That is the, the, the fashion. It captured my attention. It stirred me up. It did something to me. But again, I'm in middle school, so I have no idea what the Dead Kennedys are talking about. Uh, but it's like every subtle, defiant act was just this moment of me saying, like, do they see me? Do, do I actually belong? And now I've sensed that this is pretty normal for teenagers. This is a marker of development. Um, and I've learned that this is real because it happens way earlier in life with toddlers. Now, I have a, a couple of those over yonder. And as a toddler, you are saying, I am distinct from you, my caregiver. And as a teenager, you're saying, I am distinct from this unit. It's all about this distinction. But in both aspects, it's asking, do I belong? Do you see the uniqueness that I am? So in essence, I was like this teenaged toddler in the fashion of punk rock. But here's the problem with being a punk rocker in middle school, is that you still want your parents to take you to practice. So you're saying, like, you're raising a middle finger at the man, but you still are asking the man to, like, where's dinner? <laughs> so um, it's kind of this dissidence that you're experiencing in the season. I'm like, okay, will you buy me food? But not that. Anyways, you get the point. I, I took all of this for granted. And, and, you know, I'm not really into the dead Kennedys today. I don't know. Maybe you are. Um, 
But I still find myself caught up in this question, like, do they see me? It's just the fashion has changed. See, only now I, I have more confidence in a response that attends to that deep longing in my soul to belong. I think I've actually, with Jesus, found something substantive enough that can satisfy those longings when I trust that it's actually real. And, and I think that's what Jesus is inviting us to encounter in the Sermon on the Mount today. See, we're about to get into a teaching text that's going to invite us to the wonder of unexpected belonging. And you may not know this, but the Sermon on the Mount is considered like the creme de la creme of Jesus' teachings. Some scholars will say that it's a collection of all of Jesus' teachings. Some will say he gave it all at once. Whatever you think, what what Jesus is offering here today is perhaps one of the most well-known things that he said. This is what Protestants call the Lord's Prayer or our Catholic brothers and sisters call the Our Father. This is the place where Jesus, I think, is holding out the wonder of unexpected belonging, and he does so by offering us a prayer, yes, to pray and to live. This is a prayer that we get to pray, and for me, and I hope for you, it's a prayer that can stir us up, it can get our attention, and then we can fashion our lives in the manner of this prayer. And I want us to hear this whole thing, and if you've been around here for a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. There's something about, and that means like right now, um, there's something about uh, like responding to God's word with our body, which reminds us that it's not just a theory that I'm considering, but it's a reality that I'm entering into. Therefore, it's like opening a door and stepping into it, and now I have to situate myself so we stand out of honor for God's word. This is the place that we might encounter the unexpected belonging in Jesus's family. This is Matthew chapter six, picking up in verse seven. And when you pray... Do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray, and if you would, pray this with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I'll take 14 and 15. (laughs) For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So this, this prayer arrives in our passage kind of as an interruption. So this, these verses, verses 7 to 15, they come in the middle of this larger unit of teaching, verses 1 to 18, that, that lean into three aspects of religious life. This is almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. We touched on this this past week. But then in the middle of this little um, formula, almost on prayer, Jesus interrupts his teaching with this first line, you, you, you catch it there in verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. So Jesus interrupts himself, and then when he gives the prayer, that's another interruption to the thing he just did. So this is like the friend you have who is having a conversation with you, but then they end up kind of having a conversation with themselves and inviting you down the wormhole. So welcome to the wormhole. This is, this is the prayer, the Our Father. 
And this prayer, it kind of just plops down in the middle of Jesus offering up these countercultural practices. And these things, the almsgiving, the prayer, and the fasting, these are things that were for the good of a community. If you recall, this is like the summation of last week's teaching. This is it. Instead of public performance, pursue the public good through private devotion. Instead of public performance, praying on street corners, like making yourself look all disheveled to show everyone you're fasting, instead of public performance, pursue the public good through private devotion. That is, those things that you're doing are actually meant to move through you for the good of others. Prayer is meant to move through you for the good of others. Giving is meant to move through you literally for the good of others. And fasting is the same. However, these things were, were twisted. It became this place of like pompous public prayer. And so instead, Jesus says, no, hide away. And it's there that we catch Jesus then leaning in. When you are there, alone in your prayer closet, doing your thing, this is how you pray. And there's many Christians throughout the centuries who think that this is not just an invitation to like a form of prayer, although I think it is that. This is the invitation to actually pray these things. It would be entirely regular for a, a, a rabbi to give their disciples this type of prayer. We're going to have distractions all day to your right, folks. Right here. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I'm not Jesus. <laughs> Take it easy. Okay. Instead of public performance, pursue the public good through private devotion. And then in verse 7, Jesus shifts from the religious pretension, that, that pretension that's hungry for the public approval. He shifts from that. Now he's going to go to this distortion in prayer and correct it through the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. So check this out again. Listen to verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling. You don't really have to go any further. See, this is the distortion that Jesus is going to lean into right here. And you actually see what the babbling does. You see this on the latter part of verse 7. They think, namely the pagans, that's not like a pejorative or a derogatory term. He's saying these are religious or spiritual people, is how we would say it. But they're spiritual people who are pursuing their spirituality outside of the domain of Judaism. So they're not worshiping Yahweh, the one true creator God. They're just religious and or spiritual pagans in this case. So don't keep babbling like the pagans. Why? They think they will be heard because of their many words. See, there's this tradition and practice that's up and running among Jesus' neighbors that if they start naming all of these names, if they start giving all of these beautiful names to the gods, that then the gods will hear it because the gods are kind of grumpy and they need to be satisfied. And you never really know, like, do they see me? Do I belong with them? So if I give them the right stuff, verbally and or like materially, then they'll be satisfied. So Jesus is disrupting this prayer, these types of prayers where the prayers are long, they're verbose, they're effusive. And I just, um, I, I love a good extemporaneous prayer. If you've um, grown up in the Protestant tradition, um, how many people, just by a show of hands, you just love pre-written prayers? You love the, the book of common prayer. You love, you just find yourself like your heart's affections are stirred for Jesus as you read the prayers of others. Am I the only one? Okay, we got like three, four people, five people. Okay, now how many of you does that feel like awkward and disingenuine? Yeah. So, okay, here we are. 
this is the reality, is that we would have vibed with the pagans because we love an authentic prayer that comes from the felt experience of the moment. We love to just let it flow. And Jesus is kind of saying, well, maybe just like close the tap and just receive this prayer and pray this. So it's kind of disrupting when we, when we receive it as such. And I love an extemporaneous, like I love the impromptu prayer. This is, this is actually my jam. I'm a verbal processor. Like Jesus, you see me, you know me in these moments. But this is the corrective that Jesus is offering is to participate in the wonder of unexpected belonging where we don't have to drum up the affection of the Father. It's already there. It's already ours in Christ Jesus. We just get to step into it. And this is the place. This prayer is the place where we get to cultivate that intimacy. See, Jesus is not saying that you need to be perceived by God. He's saying God already perceives you, therefore enter in. How are we doing? This is the interruption that Jesus is coming. And essentially, you could sum it all up and get into it in this way. Like, remember who you're talking to. So if Jesus is interrupting this section on prayer, we just have to remember who we're talking to. This is what we read in verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Remember who you're talking to. When we arrive at the Lord's Prayer, it's, this is a prayer that like, I have taught through a number of times. I've taught through this passage in Luke, in Matthew, in random settings, like with friends. And, and the temptation that I feel, I don't know if you feel this, is that when you come to something that's familiar, I want to like, dress this passage up with a rhetorical fashion that makes it seem in vogue. Like I want this thing to pop. But Jesus is saying, um, just let it be, buddy. Remember who you're talking to because words alone do not have the power to draw us into the presence of God. Jesus is reminding us that we're already approved. Like we don't have to drum it up. We're already welcome because this is a, a prayer of unexpected belonging. And what you encounter over and over and over and over again across the scriptures is that God is, is reminding us of something. And he does so by, by this one word. Remember. You see this littered throughout the scriptures. It's rather beautiful. Um, when the God of Israel dramatically invaded creation and then miraculously like delivers people and there's provision and there's the felt presence of God. This is like fiery mountain God or like the cloud of uh, smoke and the pillar of fire. When that God shows up, the creator God, there is this, this word that comes with it. Remember. Because remembrance is all about the practice of retelling, reliving, and remembering. <laughs> you see the people who are delivered, and then what they do, like this is in Joshua, they go through a river, but then they take stones out of a river and they put them on the bank. Why are they doing that? Because one day, they're going to be walking along, and maybe a friend or a cousin or a son or a daughter is going to say, why is that pile of rocks there? Oh, that's our Ebenezer. Did you know that you've been singing about this for like your whole Christian life? You've been talking about an, e an Ebenezer. This is the Ebenezer, the stone of remembrance. This is the place where you get to retell and relive and remember the goodness of God. Remember is the word that comes to the fore. Remember who you're talking to. The, the famous rabbi, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, he, makes it, he says it this way. He says, much of what the Bible demands can be comprised in one word. Remember. 
It's looking back so that we would situate ourselves in a place of faithfulness in the present. We look back to remember God's goodness so we can stand confident where we are. And perhaps you're wondering, like, what gives Heschel the motivation to make such a bold claim? Like, every demand, like, that's rooted in the word remember. Um, Well, to my mind, the scriptures call us to remember because we are so prone to forget. we, We forget not just who we are, but whose we are, that we are those who belong with and to and are are like that God wants to participate in our life, not just that we be called into the divine life or something like that. No, like God's like, what are you up to? This This is the imagery of like God's personal presence coming to us in the spirit. And so, but we are so prone to forget. We're prone to forget who God is and who we are. So we need to remember who we're talking to and we need to remember who we are. And to see what I mean, I want us to go back to the beginning. And, and you can flip there if you want, back to Genesis chapter 3. Um, but this is kind of where the story picks up, if you know what I'm saying. If you don't, stay tuned. Uh, see, I'm, so I'm going to do a little storytelling, then we'll read Genesis chapter 3, picking up in verse 1. What we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that there's, this is an odd scene. But in order to know what's going on in Genesis 3, you have to know what's going on right before that. You see, right before that, Yahweh Elohim, or it's translated in the English, the Lord God, just set out to create. It's the moment where the Spirit of God is like hovering over the face of the deep. That's the wild and waste, and then the voice of the living God calls out, and creation bursts forth, and there's light. And maybe you're like, well, I'm kind of down with science, and so the days are all missing. Like, this is, just stay with me. This is this like beautiful, creative act. There's not violence needed to create. It is calling forth beauty and order out of chaos. And then there, humanity, male and female, are placed in this place, this this garden of delight, to push the bounds of flourishing out into all the world, to take delight and have it be the experience of all creation. Actually, did, did you know Eden is the Hebrew for delight? Like the Garden of Eden is the Garden of Delight. Like this is God's desire. The Creator God wants all of creation to enjoy the beauty that is in delight, in intimacy with the Creator. And so it's there that in this like garden place with these divine ambassadors who have been called to push the bounds of flourishing out into all of creation, that then Genesis 3 comes. And this is what we read, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent... The serpent was more crafty than any of the animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree, any tree in the garden? Now, however you make sense of Genesis 1 to 3, whether that's poetry or myth or whatever, um, I think we can all relate to this, like the Genesis 3 experience, this uh, sense of discomfort in our own skin, this like psychological angst. It's personal and it's complex because um, when I woke up this morning, life was complex. And and that was just in this little constellation of my life with like my in-laws are there and small humans are about and I'm going to catch the bus, but I'm running late. Like life, there's a lot of complexity there and that is the human experience. But what we see here is that that complexity has a rootedness in a different story and it's the one that we're reading about. And what's so curious about this whole scene is that the serpent never, not once, directly appeals to disobedience. The the serpent is not like, hey, I think you should just do this because it's really going to piss God off. Like, go for that one. No. What what do we see? It's this, this chipping away at the character of God. Did God really say? Like, if... 
If you want to know what God actually said, just flip the page back to Genesis chapter 2. This is picking up in verse 16. This is what God actually said. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Notice, notice the, free, the free reign that Yahweh Elohim has given. Like the Lord God has said, it's all yours. Go nuts. Have a blast. This is going to be fantastic. Just go for it. And, and, and even um, God's goes so far as to say, yeah, there's that like pesky poisonous tree. You're going to want to avoid that one, but everything else is fantastic. Go for that. And that, that, that is the place where the enemy flips the script and the prohibition that is set in place for Eve's good is actually where this story of abundance and plenty is then recast as a story of a stingy God who's holding out. So we have to remember who we're talking to, and we actually have to remember who we are lest we forget that God's character is for our good. And this, this may not mean much to you, to, to hear a story about abundance versus scarcity, but, but check this out. The, the, the question that comes is, did God really say what God said? Like, and the question beneath that question is, can you trust this God? Like, will this God actually see you? And the deception is noteworthy, but it only kind of touches on our passage back in Matthew 6. The real meaty stuff is found in God's name. And this is what I mean. In Genesis chapter 2, what you find throughout there constantly, it is the Lord God. Yahweh Elohim is the name. The Lord God. The Lord God. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3. The Yahweh drops off and it's just Elohim. Did God really say? The, the, the personal and the intimate falls away and it's just the sterility, the sterile nature of that God far off. Like this may not mean, this is, this is huge. The personal falls away and then it's just that God. See, this is like calling someone by their title instead of their name. This is for, like if you were to call someone doctor instead of Aaliyah or professor instead of Karen or sir instead of Daryl, this is as impersonal as my boys coming up to me and calling me pastor. It would feel awkward and wrong, and I would say, no, 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 I am dad. And you know what's funny? Sometimes Griffin will call me Kyle, and even that, I'm like, no, 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 I'm dad. Like there's something about that intimacy that if he calls, if he calls me Kyle, I'm like, what are you doing? Who are you? It's awkward. This is how awkward that scene is. Because the closer that you are to someone, the weirder it is when they call you by your title. But we do this. Like when you are really frustrated with somebody who's close to you, your roommate or one of your closest friends or your children, like what, what you end up doing is you did that. You're not using their name, or they did that. It, like, it becomes impersonal and objective. You notice when the personal falls away, it's really easy to vilify that person. But as soon as you move close and you make this an interpersonal thing, it's really difficult to yell at someone that you love when you are face-to-face -face with them and you're not like at them like this. This is something my therapist tells me that when you're feeling like you're getting fired up, sit back in your chair like this and then try and, and yell. <laughs> like there's something that just disarms you 
But there's something that arms you when you make that an objective because then you are just demeaning that thing. But the invitation is to see that there is something personal going on. So the deception is noteworthy, but the, na- the way that the enemy of our soul drops the personal and just moves it to this ambiguous God title, that's the meat. So because the fall is not so much a story about doing the wrong thing as much as a story of broken trust. It's, it's where it just fell out. And Eve participated in the recasting of God as distant and stingy by remembering God according to the serpent's description and not God's actual character. And in the vacancy of that gap, Eve saw fit to abide by her definition of good and bad, seize what she thought was good, and have her way with it. And, if, and I, I, this like brings up all sorts of questions about Genesis and what's going on there. And so if you're asking some of those, write them down. Let's have a good chat later. Um, but maybe you're just wondering, what's with the talking snake? That's a good one for us to have a conversation about. Or you're like, what in the heck was Adam doing the whole time? Homeboy's just standing there and then like, what, what's going on? Anyway, these are great questions. We're not going to talk about any of those. To keep us on track, the point is this. We need to remember who we're talking to and that Jesus is prayer, it repairs the relational gap with the Father. Remember this. This is back in verse 9 now in Matthew chapter 6. How does Jesus invite us to pray? Our Father in heaven. The place where prayer starts is the place with restored intimacy. Our Father, remember who you're talking to. But I just, um, I don't want to assume that we are like all in the same place that would be silly. So um, h- how does it feel to call or remember God as Father? Just like sit with that. How does it feel to remember or call God Father? Like perhaps your story carries the weight of historical patriarchy and you've come from a context where you actually have no interest in calling God Father. Or when you think of father, what comes to the mind is like a less than rosy story of your childhood and your relationship to your own father. If either of those stories or anything in between like seem to map onto your own, Jesus' prayer is for you. Like he's actually trying to restore the relationship with your heavenly father, knowing the mess of the world that we're in. So Jesus is not calling us out of the world, but no, he says, I'm actually, I want you to stay right there because I want the world to see the repair that's on offer in my name. And this is a part of the mess. This is a mess I carry in my own story. It is one of the most difficult things for me to come to this prayer that starts with our father. I can deal with the sovereign king of the cosmos, but something about my father just stirs up a mess of emotions in my family of origin, and I just don't want to go any further. And this is the beautiful thing about Jesus. He's just inviting us to it. He's just inviting us to this reality. And, and just, like, I'm not up here, like, contending for, like, a gendered view of God. I think God's entirely, God is spirit, God's entirely, God's fine playing a paternal role, God's fine playing a maternal role, but the parental love of God will not shift because that love is all enduring. And I think what Jesus is inviting us to is this, this reckless belonging 
that untangles that ancient deception in our hearts to fashion something new. He wants to untangle the deception to describe God or define God in our own way so that we might fall into this place of love, like to the flow of intimacy with the Father, the wonder of unexpected belonging. And it starts right there with a single word. And if you're still a little bit suspicious as we close, we're just going to push in a little bit further. But by the way, I know we're leaving a lot on the table. This is like the, the Lord's Prayer or our Father, and we're doing two words. So next week, we'll pick up some of the other stuff. Um, but but this, is, this is the good stuff, in my opinion, and you can take it or leave it. But before Jesus does a single thing in his, in his public ministry, he actually joins this, like, wacky renewal movement out in the desert. There's this guy who's eating bugs, and he's wearing animals, like, camel's clothes. It's just weird. And Jesus goes out, and he joins this renewal movement. And he, as he's setting out to, to do this, when Jesus takes the plunge and publicly identifies with God's power to renew through repentance, that's, this is John the Baptist, by the way, the, the like, wacky renewal guy. Um, He's, he's offering a baptism of repentance. That is, you enter into this place, you turn around and you devote your heart, your imagination, your life to Yahweh. That was the invitation, to start living with obedience to God. Jesus enters into this. Sometimes we ask this question, why did Jesus need to be baptized? No, he's recognizing that God is at work through repentance. And you may know this scene. This is in Matthew. This is earlier in Matthew chapter 3. This is in verse 16. Just check out what happens. Jesus says yes to the renewal of God through repentance, and then this is what goes down. Matthew 3, 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. Can we just pause for a moment? When was the last time you saw heaven opened? I've never seen it. It would be fantastic. Heaven was opened, and the Spirit of God He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. This is all the imagery of creation. There's something new breaking out with Jesus and a voice from the heavens said, this is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. Before Jesus does a single thing, before he lifts a finger in announcing the kingdom of God, the father announces his good pleasure over his son. Let me just say this again. Before Jesus does a single thing, the Father announces his good pleasure over the Son. This is this place of unexpected belonging. Jesus' actions do not try and drum up the affections of the Father. No, Jesus moves entirely from the place of beloved. And in Christ, that's the invitation we have as well. We don't only need to remember who we're talking to. We need to remember who we are. We need to think back to the garden when Eve reimagined God apart from God's parental love. Because in that moment, Eve, there was this unspoken thing that she also imagined herself as less than one worthy of love. And it's like Jesus' prayer invites us to a place of belonging with the Father. And that is confusing and unexpected and weird and probably takes a lifetime to experience the goodness that's on offer there. But what we see is when we start reading through the scriptures, like in the New Testament, there's this overabundance of weight placed on this identity marker. Too many times in the New Testament you're called a Christian. Close, three times. Three times Christians are, it's like, and it's, and it's a diss. Like little Christs, little messiahs. 
Now it's like if you call yourself a Christian, there's a lot of baggage to it, and maybe it's the most beautiful and subversive thing you can say or the most annoying thing you could say. But I'm guessing like your Instagram thing doesn't say like uh, Christian, it says like beloved by the king or something like that. Um, which is really true, which is true, and so I don't want to throw too much shade at that, but just a little bit. But when you roll through the New Testament, three times followers of Jesus are called Christian. It's like 56 times that Christians are called beloved. Now, I didn't just pass an exam with 500 hours, but let's just see here. What's the difference here? This, this is pretty substantial. Like, at the core of our identity is beloved. Um, how many of you feel that, like, in your bones right now? Like, when you woke up this morning, was the word that you spoke aloud, the first word like, I am my beloved and his desire is for me? It wasn't mine. Like in the, in the deepest recesses of your inner woman or your inner man, like, is it like tucked away some part where you're like, yes, I, get, I agree with that theologically, but I just don't. Um, down the street across the river is, it's, it's Pride Month, and there are, I think, to the church's shame, women and men and queer folks who, who are like walking along with this wrenching heart, asking the question, do you see me? And you know what the church has said historically? No. There can be a different response, but it doesn't have to be one of like, we're wide open or we're closed. It can simply be the word that's already been spoken. We actually don't have to imagine anything. We don't have to have a PR campaign. We could just live in the word already spoken by the Father and that's beloved. And then when someone's already beloved, it like it creates space for us to move in and not have to do anything to refashion their character. We can just be formed by the Father's love and then um, just be with them as the Father is with us in all of our stuff. Maybe this is a beautiful time to, to be a follower of Jesus, to live from the place of this identity as beloved. I'd like to think it is, or else this is just a silly thing. <laughs> Our Father is where we encounter the unexpected belonging in Jesus. And so I, I again recognize we're leaving a lot on the table, but I just don't think if we, get, if we cannot wrestle with our belonging to the Father, then we cannot hallowed God's name. We cannot pray unto the kingdom coming. We cannot actually extend forgiveness to those who have assaulted and assisted. Like, we cannot actually participate in this prayer if we don't first reckon with our belonging. So um, I think it's worth just giving this a try. And maybe these are just words today, but hopefully there's something more. As we, as we turn to respond to Jesus, which is what we're doing now, um, I would just invite you to stand. We're going to try this really simple thing. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to invite you to say this little statement over and over again. And I don't, I don't, I'm not talking about like manifesting something or... Um, these words might feel as foreign to you as if you were speaking a different language. And yet in Christ, this is, this is who we are. And so I just invite you into this. 
It's these words here. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Why don't you say that with me? I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Let's say it again. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Say it again. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Let's just do it a couple more times. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Say, say it so your like, neighbor can hear it and so that your heart can actually like, maybe believe it. And I'm not going to use the mic, so now it's on you. May this be true. May this, you know, it's funny. It actually is already in Christ. So may we live as though this is true.